listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life Moscow Campus, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Hi family, how are you? So excited to be with you here with the amazing and talented Emmy Salisbury. She's our youth pastor here at the church and she does a bang up job. Rumor is there was quite a massive dodgeball tournament last night. And uh, I heard that Ellie Gray has a vicious fastball. That's what I heard. Yes, she does. <laughs> so uh, there was trophies and rings and all of that kind of stuff. So super stoked to be up here with her this morning. We're going to jump back into our Shaping Faith series. We took a little detour last week. But what we, where we've been <clears throat> is we've been talking about how to execute a really solid spiritual fitness plan and how that, how that interacts for us and what it's supposed to accomplish. And so we started out with the core four, which is a square. And um, we talked about our four key internal development practices, text, prayer, worship, and fasting. We talked about those four practices, what they are, how they work, how they play off of one another, what they're supposed to be producing in us. So if you missed any of that, you can go back and catch that. Then um, we switched gears and started to move into the circle, which is phase two of our three-phase executable plan, right? Uh, And so that's our healthy community. What does it mean to be in healthy community? And there's eight pieces to that. And again, I want to reiterate this because people... So I was completely in another state uh, last week before last, and they, somebody came up to me, they're like, I listened to your sermon. I don't think you have all the pieces of healthy community. (laughs) I've said this every time I've mentioned it. It is not an exhaustive list, but all all eight of these pieces need to be there. Um, That's important. All eight of the pieces need to be there if we're going to have healthy community. You can add to the list. You're free. Free to add as you see fit. Um, But I'm right. Anyway, so... Uh, we'll, land, we'll land with that. Uh, so we talked about ownership and relationship and, and that there's three parts to relationship. There's your part, my part, and God's part. I cannot do your part in relationship and I certainly cannot do God's part, but I do have to own my responsibility to do my part. And I can't do less than my part in relationship. And the Bible calls us to do that regardless of whether or not the other person does their part or not. That's, I got to own that responsibility if we're going to have healthy community. And so today we're going to pick up that idea of healthy community with a nice light topic of forgiveness. And so uh, really want to uh, dial in on this. Here's, here's the thing that we know about forgiveness, just jumping into this. The truth is there's no way to solve forgiveness in a venue like this. Like there's no way to do it. It's too big and nuanced. And some of us have little hurts and some of us have really big weights that we're carrying around where we've been wounded by all different kinds of things, abuse, neglect, whatever. And, and I just want to say this, if that's where you are, I get that forgiveness for you while it's still a call of God is a much more involved process. I get that. And you need counseling and and friends to journey with you and it's gonna take a longer period of time. That's okay. What we're gonna focus on today is a couple of stories in the Bible where we see forgiveness play out and where we see forgiveness not play out and we wanna observe the difference between the two stories. What happened when we executed forgiveness and what happens when we don't execute forgiveness? And so that's what we're gonna talk about um, today. The first story that, and, that we're gonna take a look at is in the book of Judges. And I'm gonna read both of these stories without a lot of commentary. Um, Amy will be pulling them apart later, but I wanna just pay attention. 
as you, as you hear and read through the story with me, how is forgiveness or lack of forgiveness playing out? What is it leading to and how are things happening there? So first story is out of Judges 15. This is out of a section of the life of Samson. And what's happened is Samson is a judge in the period of the judges. It's a good time to be a judge. And he has decided that he wants to take a wife that is a Philistine, which is a raises all kinds of questions. And to take it even a step further, it says that this thing was put into him by, by God. This thing was something that God was working in his heart. Another sermon for another day. But um, he goes and marries this gal, and then he goes home. He leaves her in her village, and he goes home to his own village to hang out. And then he decides to go back. And that's where we're going to pick up the story here. It says this, later on, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and went to visit his wife. And he said, I'm going into my wife's room. He's so romantic. <laughs> but her father would not let him go in. I was so sure you hated her, he said, that I gave her to your companion. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Like, okay, wait a minute, dad. That's like the worst example of parenting in the history of parenting. <laughs> Especially with girls. Don't compare how they look with one another ever. Don't do that. Uh, this is a little general dad rule. Like, if, if your wife comes to you and says, hey, you've blown it as a dad, go, well, I didn't do that. <laughs> I may be bad, but I'm not stupid. <laughs> so Samson said to them, this time I have the right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. So he went out and caught 300 foxes, you know, <laughs> Like you do, <laughs> no big deal. It's all in a day's work. <laughs> Tied them tail to tail into pairs, and then he fastened a torch to every pair of the tails, lit the torches, and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. And he burned up the shocks and the standing grain together with the vineyard and the olive groves. And when the Philistines asked, who did this? They were told, Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because he was given to his, his wife was given to his companion. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. All right. Samson said to them, since you've acted like this, I swear that I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. And then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Etam. And the Philistines went up and camped in Judah, spreading out near Lehi. And the people of Judah asked, why have you come to fight us? We've come to take Samson prisoner, they answered, do, to do to him as he did to us. The thin 3,000 men from Judah went down to the cave in the rock of Atom and said to Samson, don't you realize that the Philistines are rulers over us? What have you done to us? He, he answered, I merely did to them what they did to me. They said to him, we've come to tie you up and hang you, hand you over to the Philistines. Samson said, swear to me that you won't kill me yourselves. And agreed, they answered, we will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him, two new ropes, and led him uh, up from the rock. As he, as he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward them, him shouting, and the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, and the ropes on his arms became like charred flax. And we all know exactly what charred flax is like. And the bindings dropped from his hands, finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. 
And then Samson said, with a donkey's jawbone, I've made donkeys of them. Now read that in the King James. That'd be awesome. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. Now, this is what happens when we don't leverage forgiveness in a situation, right? This is what happens when we don't leverage forgiveness in a situation. Now I want to look at another story. And this is a story out of the life of Joseph. If you'll remember, when Joseph was 17, he had a vision that his brothers were going to bow down in front of him and worship him, which went over really well with his brothers. They were sure happy to embrace that idea. So they start to resent him, and his dad sends him out one day to bring them food. And so as far as Joseph knows, his dad's in on this plot. His brothers grab him, throw him in a pit, and sell him into slavery for doing the right thing. He gets taken down to Egypt, bought by a guy named Potiphar, and raises to the top in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife makes a pass at him. He resists her, which is the right thing to do. She accuses him of trying to rape her, and, she, and he lands in prison for doing the right thing. Like, this is kind of the MO of Joseph's life. If there was ever anybody that had a right to be resentful, and then he spends a bunch of time in prison. He gets forgotten in prison, but then one day Pharaoh has a dream and he has to come up and interpret the dream. They figure out that there's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. So uh, Joseph devises a plan and gets elevated to number two in the entire nation of, of Egypt, which is the most powerful nation in the world at that time. So they have seven years of plenty and then the famine hits and then his brothers come down from Israel to buy wheat not knowing what has happened to Joseph. And so there's these kind of couple of preliminary meetings and, and they get hung out, but then finally Joseph is going to reveal himself. And if there was ever a moment for his brothers to be terrified, this is it. And I want you to see what happens. Let's read. It says, and Joseph could no longer control himself. Before all his attendants, he cried out, Has everyone, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Uh, yeah, paybacks. Put Samson in this position. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one who you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was, it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me the father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all that you have. Now I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise you and your household who all belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves so that, so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything that you've seen and bring my father down here quickly. 
And then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. All right, so going back to the story of Samson, did you guys catch on the ping pong of pain back and forth? Like, Samson had already decided in his heart, like, who demands of their parents to go find them a wife, especially a Philistine wife? Like, we could camp there, like Aaron said, for probably an hour and unpack that. That's a big no-no. But he had, he had this posture of demand. So he goes, his wife's not available, he gets super upset, he ties the fox's tails together, he sticks a torch between their bums and sets them afire on, out on the field. This is a plan that only a middle school boy can come up with. <laughs> I know, I work with them. So, and then it just completely destroys all of their fields. Well, what does this do? It takes the food out of the Philistines' mouths. Mama bear's gonna kick in, the Philistine mama bear, and she's gonna be mad. Don't mess with baby. Now, what's super clever about Samson's plan is that the Philistines have to come to the Israelites to buy their grain. It's like the knife and the turn. So, of course, they get upset. They kill his family. He gets upset. He kills thousands of people. He knows he did something bad. Why else wouldn't he have run? He goes and hides in the cave. So then, the Philistines come to his community, and they're like, dude, you brought us in on this now. This was between you and them. Now it's affecting us. Go fix it. So they go, tell him, bring him down. He busts out. Who finds a fresh jawbone of a donkey? Like you have those laying around? And furthermore, how do you kill thousands of people with the jawbone? I mean, really, let's picture this. Let's have Hollywood make us a story so we can actually see it. Wouldn't it be phenomenal? But what's going on in this story? What is Samson doing? What has he done long before the offenses even came about? What is the stories that he's telling himself? Let's look at some of the, the wording that he's using. I have a couple of um, translations up here so we can compare it. I have a right, verse three. I cannot be blamed. I have rights. This is American. We got our rights. Samson is put as a judge over this nation. God has put him in a place of authority. He could do it God's way, or he could do it Samson's way. How's it working for him? He has this position, and he is so filled up with his own ego that he feels as though the whole world, this moment, this place and time, he is the judge, he has the right to sentence, convict, and punish these people for their wrongdoing. What else is he saying? Verse seven, since you've acted like this, I swear that I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. I won't rest until I've taken vengeance. How well do you think he sleeps at night? Probably not, probably not well at all. He probably sits his little head on his pillow and he replays the stories in his mind. I've been there. I could have said that, ooh, that really would have got him. What else is he saying? I merely did to them what they did to me. I only paid them back for what they did to me. We have this cycle, this pain cycle, that's going on and on and on. But he, can't, he can't get a grip of what it is doing to him 
and the community around him. I love this quote from Brad Gray's book, uh, Make Your Mark, What Samson Got Wrong. Samson has this inflated sense of his own control. This is what revenge does to us. It makes us believe that we can engage it and quit whenever we want. The problem is we can't. Revenge is alluring and intoxicating. It gets into our blood and it takes over. We don't control it, it controls us. Revenge begets revenge. The gas in the engine of revenge is this belief that if you hit the opposition back hard enough, they won't retaliate. This is what a heart full of unforgiveness feels like. There's no rest. There's no sense of community. What if, what if there was something that we could decide here and now, today, that if and when, because we are a community, we do life together, this is who we are, that when those offense comes, that there is something that we will proactively choose to respond rather than to react through. And I know Aaron and I have been super challenged and even changed, our families are changing, because we're taking on this new thought and heart belief that we're gonna be people that are unoffendable. So I, a couple of weeks ago I mentioned this book, Unoffendable, by Brant Hansen. Um, the best book I read in 2018, hands down. It's a phenomenal book. You should stop what you're reading and read it. Um, except for right now, you're reading the screen. So <laughs> as soon as church is over. There you go. Some of you guys are like, I haven't read a book in years. Good. Pick this one up and read it. Um, it's so good. And, and his premise is that as followers of Jesus, we don't have the right to be offended ever because if you remember 1 Corinthians 13, he says love is patient, love is kind, doesn't envy, doesn't pose. One of the things that he says in there is that love doesn't take up an offense. So when we act like God, we act like love. <clears throat> when we take up an offense, we cannot act like God. And, and what people will immediately run to to justify their own offenses is, but I should be offended at the things that offend the heart of God. No, you don't have the right to be offended. Well, but God gets mad at things. Correct. He gets to do all kinds of things that we don't get to do. Because his character can handle it. And mine can't. And that's the problem, is that when we take on the offenses of God, we try to take on the posture of God, and we try to exact revenge. That is not our call. So the only way to keep from getting caught up in trying to take vengeance is to never get offended in the first place. That's why Paul says in Romans, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Our job is to love one another, be completely humble and gentle, live in harmony with one another. And as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. In that same section of scripture, that's what Paul says to the church. We can't, we can't be offended. We can't take on offense. If you want to get over forgiveness, you got to stop being offended. It's just the way it is. And for too many of us, we carry offense way too easy and way too long. And I love uh, Tim Keller's book, The Way of the Cross. He talks about um, the way of the cross says that the pain stops here. I will take it. I will absorb it. I will not pass it on. This is the way that we're called to. And I get, I get, I, I, I'm not trying to belittle pain. I'm not trying to belittle suffering. What I'm trying to say is the posture of somebody who 
walks with Jesus is that we live in a place of not taking up offense. We live in a place of saying, putting God on display correctly is more important than me exercising my right to make you pay for what you did wrong. So Brand Hansen has this quote in his book. Here's what it says. It says, whenever there's an injury to a relationship, a hurt, a broken heart, or even a broken thing, and you're willing to forgive, you're saying, I got this. I'm gonna pick up the bill for this. And this is, of course, precisely what God has done for us. And I know that the immediate response to that is, but that's not fair. True. And fair is a four-letter F word, right? Like, life isn't fair. Our call is not to be fair. And straight up, God isn't fair. Trying to get fair out of life leads to a a painful existence. Life isn't fair. And I'm so thankful that God isn't fair. Because if God was fair, if he actually gave me what I deserved, like the need for fair negates grace. You can have fair or you can have grace. You can't have both. And I would say that the way that we're called to live is about grace and not fair. We gotta learn to be unoffendable. All right, so let's look at Joseph's story. Similar in the stories that there's this back and forth. If you read in the the story in your Bible that Joseph tests his brothers and um, he's trying to see what is going on in their heart. Who are they? Um, but what we know of the story is that Joseph has spent time in prison. He's spent time serving. He was a, an older teenage boy that was you know, sold off to slavery. That alone would cause a lot of hurt. Then he's in prison. Then he's in another nation in Egypt serving. And then we pick up the story when he's 42 years old and he's face to face with what is he going to do? How is he going to treat his brothers that he has not seen in a long time? They could have tried to track him down, but they didn't. That's hurtful. What is he going to do? What's his posture when he comes face to face with his brothers? Let's look at this in Genesis 42. It says, as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Do you blame him? I don't. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams. He remembered, he remembered that God had given him a dream that he was to be a part of a nation that brought people to God's kingdom. He remembered that Abraham had give, was given that promise and he too at that precise moment was a part of it. That that promise hung on his shoulders and if he didn't execute it well, the promise is dead. He remembered that the promise that the nation of Israel was much bigger than his story. See, Joseph, he knew, he knew that he could hang on to the bitterness. He knew that, that life could end there, that he, would, he could get these brothers and he could show them a thing or two. He had all the power in the world, but he didn't. 
See, bitterness, when we hang on to bitterness, it freezes time. When we choose to live in forgiveness, we set people up for a future. How did Joseph get there? How did he get to a place where we can take from his story? Well, see, Joseph, he was in service to the kingdom. His eyes were set on kingdom things. Guys, for us too, when our eyes, when our focus is so just zeroed in on what is God doing here, there's no room for unforgiveness. There's no room for vengeance. We get something so much bigger when we live in forgiveness. Let's look at Genesis 45, this moment that they come together it says, and now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. You and I, this is our story right here, right now. God sent us here for a purpose and if bitterness and unforgiveness is keeping us hostage, the promise that God has over the world how are we gonna share that? How, if our bitterness freezes time, what does that mean for our kids? What does that mean for our grandkids? What does that mean for our community? Because we are a church that does community well. So what does it look like to be a community that's full of forgiveness? So if you've been hanging around our church for a while, you know that um, we've talked about this before, but Jesus' central message is the kingdom of God. His good news, his gospel is about the kingdom. And there's these two kind of central pillars of the kingdom. One is generosity and the other is forgiveness. Like if you're going to be a part of the kingdom of God, generosity and forgiveness are the things that are gonna have to mark that. And so uh, he comes at this from a thousand different angles in his ministry, but forgiveness is central to the message of Jesus. It's really hard for, for us to call ourselves followers of Jesus and refuse to forgive. If you remember um, all the way back when we did the Sermon on the Mount and, and Marty talked about the Lord's Prayer, the Amidah Prayer, and uh, the section that Jesus adds in there is forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. And then he comes back after he's done and reviews it. He says, because in the measure you forgive, you'll be forgiven, right? Like this is so central to his message. And for those of us that are here trying to put, trying to show the world what Jesus is like, we can't then choose another path. Like forgiveness has to be a defining characteristic of who we are as people. And the good thing about hanging out in relationships with other people is that we're gonna have lots of opportunity to practice it, right? We're gonna have lots of opportunity. And furthermore, before you get all hoity-toity about that, we're gonna give others lots of opportunity to practice forgiveness, right? Because we, we all, with the best of intentions, we have finite perspective. And so when we, when we come to a conversation or a relationship, we're gonna blow it sometimes. We just are. What do we do with that information? Do we defend and judge? And, and when they retaliate poorly, do we go, oh, well, I'm just gonna do to you what you did to me? Or do we find another way to absorb it so that the cycle of pain and hurting other people doesn't continue? Because what I can tell you is that cycle doesn't stop with the relationship, with that relationship. It starts to bleed. It starts to bleed into every relationship that you have. 
and that's really bad. And so with that in mind, we're gonna move towards the Lord's table, which is an opportunity for us to reflect on God's forgiveness for us so that we can be a reflection of that forgiveness to other people. We take communion every week. And um, so if you're new with us, we have an open table. What that means is anybody who wants to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is invited to partake in communion, but we want you to hold the elements till the end and we'll take them all together. Um, While they're passing that out, we have some questions that we wanna ask for our home groups this week. Uh, As you're sitting in your home groups, these are gonna be our questions that we discuss. If you're just like, man, I just absolutely refuse to be in a home group, um, I forgive you, but uh, maybe wherever you have your spiritual conversations or under your dinner table or with your friends or wherever you're having your spiritual conversations, maybe these are some great questions for you to be asking so that you can put your mind around what it means for you to be forgiving people in your own life. All right, so question number one. Are there places that you are imprisoning yourself by your choice to not forgive? I am a football fan. I think Jim Nance and Phil Simms could narrate my life in the background and I'd be just fine with it. Um, I watch it or go whenever I can. And when I'm not watching um, football, I'm usually watching a show about football because that's just what I do. And one show is Friday Night Lights. I'm not recommending it, um, but I like this part in it in that um, it's a high school football team down in Texas. Football's huge down there. And they have this motto, clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. And what I love about that motto in the conversation of forgiveness is that when we have unforgiveness in our lives, it's as though there's this glaucoma or cataracts that's clouding our eyes. We don't have clear eyes. We, everything that we look at has shadows. It doesn't have color. We're not getting the full picture. But when we are a people of forgiveness, that goes away and we can see things we normally wouldn't be able to see otherwise. We get to see hearts, we get to see people, we get to see hurt. We get to see situations that there may be a really good reason why they acted the way they did. When we have our full hearts, when we accept the love of Jesus and his forgiveness, when we learn how to be unoffendable, we have these really big, full hearts. We have hearts that are willing to engage in community because community is gonna hurt. There are gonna be times that we're gonna be offended. But when we're forgiving people, we get to have these big, full, alive hearts. And when we don't do this, when we don't offer forgiveness to people, we lose. But when we have our clear eyes, our full hearts, We can't lose, we can't lose in relationship because we offer people the opportunity to step out of relationship with us. We offer them grace. It frees us to live out our full expression of who we are in Jesus. I love the idea of clouded vision. When we're not forgiving, we have clouded vision. And the problem with that is that when we have clouded vision, it doesn't just affect the way that we see the person that offended us. Like when we have cloud of vision, it affects everybody. I, I can't see anybody clearly. And, and so, the, you know, I have this anger problem with this person over here, this lack of forgiveness over here, but then I come home and my wife and my children pay the price for that. Because I have clouded vision all the time. There's not a switch on that. My, if I have a lack of forgiveness in my life, everyone around me pays the price for it. 
everyone pays the price for it. And so I wind up hurting everyone because of my own lack of forgiveness. And so the second question that we might want to think about is where are you imprisoning someone else by your choice to not forgive? Maybe not even the person that offended you, but for sure people that you're influencing carrying your baggage into their world. Like, especially think about this in your relationship to your kids. If you're, if you're not acting in a healthy way, you're passing that baggage on to them, which that's, like, I don't want that pressure, right? But the truth is, if you don't want that pressure, you probably shouldn't have had kids because <laughs> this comes with the territory, right? It just comes with the territory. I mean, and, we, and it's not just that. I mean, obviously, that's a big one, but it's not just that one. It's all the way around, like, it's all the way around for us. Everybody that we influence carries the baggage of the stuff that we do good and bad. Um, I've said this before, but I read an article one time that said, you're the sum total of the five people closest to you. That means that you're part of their sum total. What are you giving them? Where are you imprisoning other people? Third question. How does living unoffendable show Jesus to our community? Y'all want to go on a little tubing trip with me? When we are unforgiving people, it's as if our little tubes are in a kiddie pool and they're all tied together and we're bumping into each other and it's no fun. And I'm mad at you guys for making me feel really bad and not having a good time. Sound fun? No. Forgiveness, living unoffendable as if we are tubing down the St. Joe the water is perfect. Just cool enough to take the bite out of the sun, just warm enough that it's not taking your breath away. You're sitting down into your tube. The ratio of how your little buns sink in is perfect. You don't have to engage your abs. You can relax. Like, that makes everything more enjoyable. You have the little koozie with your Diet Dr. Pepper. Your swimsuit that we're afraid to try on after the winter fits perfect. We're having a good time. We're going down the river. People are coming into contact with us. There may be somebody that's jetted off into the rapids and you look at them and you think, not offended. They're going on with life. It's okay. There's, we might get stuck in a little eddy and we're circling around and we're in conflict and we just don't know when we're gonna be able to get out of this. But we're able to engage it well and it spits us out. On down the river we go. The scenery's perfect. This is what it looks like to live in a community that we're unoffendable, that we're going to offer forgiveness. It sounds pretty awesome, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. So the last question is, um, where do you need to step out this week and seek or extend forgiveness? Where, where's the place where maybe you need to go and ask somebody for forgiveness? Because you know you heard them, but you've been justifying. I was only doing what you did to me. I only did to you what you did to me. Uh, spouses, make it right. Don't keep, well, you said this so I can, you could sleep on the couch because you said this dress made me look fat. You asked if it made me. Yeah. Um, where's a place where you need to make it right? Where's a place where you need to make it right? And where's a place where you need to extend forgiveness to somebody else, where you've been carrying an offense from, for them um, that you need to extend forgiveness for that. Where is that place in your, that's a great discussion question for your group this week to maybe help you process, because I know it's complicated. It's, it's, it's not simple to actually walk it out. And so 
Let's talk about that this week in our groups and see if we can't come up with some strategies to move past all this stuff. Um, I love taking communion just as this simple reminder that there's no, there's no length that Jesus won't go to to tell you how much he loves you and how much he's willing to forgive you. <clears throat> That's our model. And so this reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And then after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your unrelenting, boundaryless example of forgiveness and grace. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be models of that. God, give us the courage to, to face down our, our wounds and our pain, believing that on the other side of that is a freedom that we've never been able to experience before. Give us courage, Lord, in your name. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life on the Palouse. You can find out more about us by visiting us online at liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Also, if you enjoyed this message, make sure you check out the new podcast from our lead pastor, Aaron Couch, called A Better Conversation. Search for it on our website, iTunes, and the Google Play Store.